The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and with me today is Dr. Lin Yifu. Dr. Lin is Professor and Honorary Dean of the National School of Development at Peking University. Previously, he was Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at the World Bank. He held those posi- that position from 2008 to 2012. Prior to joining the World Bank, Dr. Lin served for 15 years as the founding director and professor at the China Center for Economic Research at Peking University. He is also a deputy of China National People's Congress, Vice Chairman of the All-China Federation of Industry and Commerce, a corresponding fellow of the British Academy, and a fellow of the Academy of Sciences for the Developing World. And having spent the last four days with him, I can tell you he's an unbelievably accomplished economist. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Let's start off and talk about your outlook for the China's economic performance in 2013 and what you think the implications of your predictions are for U.S.-China economic relations. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, it's a pleasure to join you today. And uh, regarding the you know, gross forecast for China for 2013, I think it's most likely will grow at a range of 8% to 8.5%. And uh, it is going to be a little bit higher than the year of 2012. And the reason for this recovery to 8% and above is because first, China still have a very good track records in the consumption growth, and especially in 2013 due to the rise in the wages for the workers and uh, for you know the government officials and uh, for other work of peoples I think consumption will continue to grow very strongly and uh, secondly I think the investment will also be somewhat higher for the year of 2012 and uh, this is because the Chinese government is pushing the urbanizations and uh, improvement of infrastructure in the inner cities and uh, also you know the investment in environmental uh, protections and also in industrial upgradings and uh, those returns of investment uh, are likely to be very high and not only the investment opportunity is good but also the government physical position is quite strong. You will be jealous of China because the government debt has a percentage of GDP, uh, including some you know, implicit debt. Uh, it's only around 40-45% of GDP. And the Chinese saving rate is high, and China also um, you know, have abundant supply of reserves. So if you put all those factors into consideration, I think uh, overall the consumption growth rate as well as the investment growth rate will be you know, higher than last year. 
and that gave me the confidence that China will be able to grow at about eight percent to eight point five percent. What do you see as the what, what do you see as the most significant rate uh, risk to that prediction? Well, I think that if you have a collapse of the financial markets in Europe,、uh, or if there are some kind of tension escalated. You know, in geopolitical areas, that certainly can be, you know, a shock to the economic growth. For instance, I guess if the United States somehow went off the fiscal <laughs> cliff and it took a few points off of U.S. GDP, that would have an effect on China's growth. Well, certainly, because U.S. China are the most important trade partners to both sides. Yeah. And what's your outlook for the、uh, five to ten year? You know, I'm also optimistic. You know, I think that if you look into the potential of the growth,、uh, it's likely、uh, China has the room to grow at about eight percent for another five, ten years, or even more. And it's because China, at this stage of development, is still a middle-income country. And for the middle-income countries, the scope for technological innovation, the scope for industrial upgrades. Uh, very large, and as a developing country, China can benefit from the latecomer advantages. And if you look at, if we you know use historical experiences as reference, China today is around Japan in the 1950s, and、uh, Singapore in the 1960s, Taiwan, Korea, in the 1970s. And、uh, on a similar level of development, they all grew at a rate of eight percent to nine percent for about twenty years. So I think that potential is there, but certainly China need to do a lot of、uh, house cleaning, to do a lot of reform,、uh, to cope with the challenging domestic issue. For example,、uh, the income disparity, the corruption. And the way to do that is for the market-oriented reform. China not also need to maintain, you know, good external step, you know, relations with the U.S. with neighboring countries. So if those things can be done, I think that、uh, likely China can continue to grow very dynamically in the coming years. And I think that's good for China, but also good for the world because for the world. Uh, I think the you know one of the most important thing for the world is growth in the world. How closely related are your predictions for growth to economic reform, and what specific economic reforms do you expect to be undertaken in the next five years? I think that、uh, you know there's you know people pay a lot of attention to the corruption issue and also income disparity issue, and. And, and and those areas,、uh, I think it's a legacy from the dual track reform in China. As you know, China did not adopted the structural RP, try to implement all the necessary reform to remove this distortion at the beginning of the transition. And I think it was a very, it, it was a right policy for China because, you know, the dual track that means the Chinese government. Continued to provide transitory protection and subsidy to some of the old sectors, and、uh, to avoid them to go bankrupt. 
and uh, that maintains stability. But China also liberalized the entry into the new sectors, which are consistent with China's competitive advantages, the more labor-intensive, more outward-oriented sectors. And that generated the dynamic economic growth. And that was the reason why China could achieve 9.9% growth rate during the transition period started in 1979. But the cost for that was for the purpose of giving some transitory protection to the old sectors. The Chinese government you know, introduced or retained some uh, distortion, for example, financial repression, and uh, also the, you know, the depression of the uh, levies on the natural resources and uh, retain some monopoly position to some of the state-owned sectors. And those kind of interventions create rent. You know, you're going to have rent seeking, and that's the reason for such a widespread corruption in China. Mm-hmm. And that also not only causing the corruption issue, but also causing the transfer of incomes from ordinary people to a few, you know, large state-owned enterprises or enterprises owned by the rich people. Uh, and and that causes the income distribution issue. And I think that uh, for both, you know, maintain social stability to remove the social you know, resentment, China need to carry out the reform. But at the same time, you know, the reason for giving those kind of transitory protection has been up because in seventy, in the you know nineteen seventy nine or even early nineteen nineties, China was still a low income country. And the sectors in the old one, all the sectors they in general are in areas quite capital intensive. China did not have competitive advantage in those kind of sectors. Firm in those kind of sectors were not viable at the time, so they 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 required this kind of protection for survival. But now China is a high middle income country, and uh, capital is not so scarce, and uh, many of those kind of sectors become, you know, China can be very competitive. Uh, because they are consistent with China's competitive advantages today. And so I think it's the right time to remove those kind of distortions. And the way of removing those kind of distortions is, on the one hand, deepening the market-oriented reform, and secondly, you know, further opening Chinese market for internal competition and uh, external competitions. And I'd like to say the Chinese government, uh, you know, Already, you know, have a very good understanding of the problem. And uh, if we read the document of the 18th Party Congress, those recommendation, uh, those reform I just, you know, lay out, mm-hmm. are all on the reform agenda of the government. So I think that in the coming years, I'm confident that the Chinese government will move, you know, uh, in a direction that further. Uh, improve the functioning of the market and further opening up of the Chinese market and that will be good for China and certainly also good for the U.S. and China relations. How do you see the property market moving forward? We've seen a very significant property appreciation over the last decade. Some have even called it an asset bubble. How do you see this new you know, the reforms affecting property prices? 
I think that is one area that China needs to pay a lot of attention because if we look the experiences in other countries, most of the financial crisis crises were triggered by the birth of bubble in the property markets. And as you mentioned, in the past few years, the prices of properties increased substantially. And that's the reason why in the last few years, Chinese government in- introduced all kinds of measures to restrain the further you know, increase in the property prices. And I think that uh, that is one area that the Chinese government need to pay attention to, and uh, and 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 you know, uh, uh, and a certain reform in those areas certainly will be helpful if we have a deepening of the financial system. Then people will have more alternative opportunity for making investment. Mm-hmm. And secondly, a lot of those price, you know, sharp increases was a result. Oh, the disparity in income distribution because some rich people and uh, they don't have good opportunity, other opportunity for making investment, and so they treat the you know buying of the property as a way for savings. Uh, so if we have a better distribution of income, I think that will remove all those that uh, that tendency also. Should we expect a more widespread imposition? of property taxes beyond what we've seen kind of experimentally so far? I think that certainly will reduce the incentive for people to to own a lot of properties. And that is a direction that Chinese government certainly can consider. Now, the U.S. fiscal cliff yeah. and the negotiations leading up to a temporary settlement yeah. certainly makes the United States look... Um, even to its own people, not very responsible. Mm. Is there a consensus view among Chinese economists about the U.S. government and the, about the U.S. economy and the risks posed by the fiscal cliff? I think that uh, yes, that's a big concern. I think that uh, you know uh, the expectation is that the U.S. you know certainly they understand the consequences, and uh, you do have two parties. And so you do have a lot of negotiation, and at the end might be some firm of compromise. Uh, 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 but uh, in the process, it can cause a lot of anxiety in the financial markets, and that's not good for that's not good for the U.S. economy. That's not good for the global economies global economies also. But at the same time, I think the most important thing that uh, U.S. need to really carry out some kind of structural reform to improve the competitiveness of the system, and that is the you know, final way out. Otherwise, you know, Japan is a, is a country can be used as a reference, you know, because Japan, since 1991, they, you know, did not carry out the structural reform necessary to resume their competitiveness, and so they encountered the lost decades in the past 20 years. And I hope certainly U.S. you know can learn a lesson from that, and so both parties can really come down 
and uh, to 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 you know to to come up with some kind of partnership framework. On the one hand, can remove the pressure of you know debt ceilings and allow you know the the the, the structural reform to be carried out in the U.S. economy. It's good for the U.S. and certainly it's also good for the world. I want to thank Justin Lin for giving so generously of his time today as he has the last week to help educate America about Chinese, the Chinese economy and help improve the U.S.-China economic relationship. Well, thank you very much. I would not say I you know, try to educate the U.S. I think it's good to exchange ideas. We can learn from each other always. And certainly that uh, views from other countries, from China, can provide some new angles to the discussion here and I hope that uh, we can continue this kind of dialogues. Thank you all for joining us from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations.